Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Alan Doig to talk about his book, A History of the Church Through Its Buildings. Alan was a university lecturer in the history of art at the University of Kent at Canterbury, and is currently a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries at the Royal Historical Society, as well as a fellow at Lady Margaret Hall at Oxford. Alan, thank you very much for being here and talking with me today. Welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Well, I was born and grew up in Vancouver in Canada and uh, just went to the local school half a mile down the road, and then high school, a mile down the same road, and university, eight miles down the very same road at the University of British Columbia. Oh, very nice. And there I read um, philosophy with fine art. And in my third year, I spent it at St. Andrews University in Scotland. And while I was there, what I really wanted to do was uh, to study architecture. And so while at St. Andrews, I got an invitation to King's College, Cambridge, for an interview to study architecture there. And to my delight, they offered me a place if I finished my degree at UBC first, which I did, then went to Cambridge, And I absolutely fell in love with the place. It was a wonderful place to study. And at the end of the degree in architecture, I discovered that what I was really interested in was the history of architecture. So rather than doing the uh, the professional practice exams, I went on to do a PhD in history of architecture, which was on a Dutch architect, Theo van Duisburg. And while doing that, uh, I went to the Netherlands with a research fellowship to the University of Delft for a couple of years. And then just before I finished the PhD, I was lucky enough to work for the National Art Collection Service to catalogue the whole of his collection of drawings and paintings and have access to the whole archive, which was fantastic just before uh, submitting my PhD. And from there, I went to the University of Kent as lecturer in history of art and taught mostly architectural subjects. And while I was at Canterbury, I began to train for the ministry, to train for the priesthood. 
and uh, then went to Cudston Theological College in the University of Oxford to finish training before going to uh, Abingdon to serve my curacy at St. Helens Abingdon. And they had a 14th century painted ceiling. And 14th century painting is relatively rare, but they had yards of it on the ceiling. And uh, in order to um, do the conservation work on that, of course, you had to do all of the technical assessment first. And um, so I spent the three years doing, doing uh, work on uh, getting the architect, the conservators, and uh, the Council for the Care of Churches and English Heritage all going in the same direction. Uh, which was a wonderful project. And when I finished my curacy at St. Helens, I was appointed as chaplain to Lady Margaret Hall in the University of Oxford. And during that time, I was also uh, a member of the Diocesan Advisory Committee on the Care of Churches, and I'm still a member there, uh, and was appointed as a member of the Council for the Care of Churches and to uh, English Heritage's uh, Churches uh, and Worship Committee. And finally, also uh, as a member of the Fabric Advisory Committees of the uh, Cathedral at Salisbury, and the cathedral at Ely. So there was a lot of conservation work that grew out of that curacy. Uh, while at uh, Lady Margaret Hall, I didn't do very much teaching, but I still have a couple of, of um, doctoral students. And um, while... While there, the college continued to support my uh, research with research grants. Uh, so I'm sorry, did you say something? I did not. There was a, a feedback from the mic. <laughs> I'm sorry. That, was that? Oh, not at all. I'll jot that down. Yeah, you can just pick up where you left off. This is stamped, so. Right, so uh, I've rather lost the flow. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so let me just jot that down. Uh, yeah, that hiccup happened right as you were mentioning that uh, you were still getting support from the college through research grants. So I don't know if you want to just kind of pick it up from there, like maybe start that part over. Yes, the college continued to support, to support my research, although there wasn't very much time with um, uh, all my other responsibilities. Uh, but I wrote a book on uh, liturgy and architecture from the early church to the Middle Ages. And after that was published, uh, Oxford University Press approached me and uh, suggested that I write a book on the history of the church through its buildings, uh, which 
was a fantastic opportunity, but they had a very clear idea of what they wanted. They wanted uh, 12 chapters, about 8,000 words to a chapter. So they wanted um, a good deal of depth in the um, uh, studies and just a single building per chapter. Now, the selection of those would be absolutely crucial. And I asked whether instead of 12 buildings, I couldn't have 20 buildings for 20 centuries. And they were very clear that what they wanted was 12 buildings and 12 chapters. So that meant that that the selection was was terribly important. Um, and especially since the selection would have to cover um, both the temporal uh, spread of 2,000 years and also the geographical spread around the world. So how to do that was uh, an enormous problem. But it did mean that I could visit my favorite cities and go to the greatest buildings in those cities. So I accepted the uh, commission and uh, spent a number of years happily making the selection. (laughs) Very nice. Uh, And so, first of all, I will say, I've talked to a lot of different uh, people in the field and a lot of professors, and I can say none of them have ever made the career path into religion. So that's that's a first for me. <laughs> and so, and that and that's great because we're of course the whole book's about you know churches, and we'll go into it in a little more detail. And so, you know, the first question I was going to have is how you selected the buildings. And so, I thank you very much for elaborating on that. Well, you know, one thing that's very interesting about the book is, as I mentioned before we recorded, you know, it's a lot more narrative because it's a much more in depth look historical wise. But you know, all you know, all architecture. There's always history of the architect and the building itself, but it's usually from the view of the users, the designer, maybe the time. So there's an interesting aspect here that all the buildings you look at, all the context and the history comes from something that we don't often evaluate a lot, and that is religion. Not even religion, religion and politics. And so you know, one. I guess we'll just jump right into it. One example that I think mean, they're all interesting, but one that comes up. The uh, the cathedral at Cordoba, and so again, you know, something that literally shaped this was religion and politics. And so, I'd love to hear you talk about more the fact that it was not just a cathedral; it actually was a mosque at one point, and then it changed, of course. Yes, well, Cordoba was a, a really interesting place to visit. Uh, when I was there, I remember. Uh, sitting down in the endless rows of columns and it's it's a wonderful space that it just seems to be delimited within forever uh and i was sitting down with my laptop and started to write in response to the space where I was sitting and was rather absorbed in this when um, a security guard came up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, what are you doing? 
and I was I was very surprised, uh, but so was he when he saw that I was wearing a clerical collar, because they had recently had uh, a group of Muslims uh, come in with prayer rugs to pray in what used to be uh, a mosque. Right. So uh, he was. It, <laughs> He was ensuring that I wasn't about to get down to pray, which is a very unusual um, uh, security issue in, in the <laughs> cathedral. Um, but the cathedral was very welcoming uh, in including me in the contemporary life of the cathedral. One of the canons uh, gave me a lot of time and took me not only throughout the cathedral, but up onto the roof where you can get an impression of the layout of what was the mosque. And then you have wedged into the middle of the cathedral and on a cross axis, the um, late Gothic, early Renaissance um, building uh, that interrupts the space of the uh, former mosque. So you get this this uh, rather antagonistic contrast between uh, mosque and cathedral. Uh, but as I say, to me, they were extremely welcoming and uh, invited me to say mass, but of, which of course I couldn't do because um, uh, they didn't realize I was an Anglican priest and not a Roman Catholic <laughs> priest. So uh, Cathedral of Cordoba was uh, um, uh, a wonderful experience uh, and a place of enormous contrasts. Very interesting. And so you had mentioned, I'm going to take the words, you mentioned, you know, kind of a aggressive contrast in a church. And so again, jumping around, another example you go into a lot of depth is, you know, Charlemagne's church. And, you know, what, whether you're an architecture or historian or not, whenever you ask someone to think about some of the older churches, they always think of, you know, beautiful, perfectly polished marble materials, etc., Whereas in this church, and I'd like to hear you elaborate a little more, you mentioned that the building materials are pretty jarring because they're not. They're very crude. You know, you had mentioned the throne is made out of very crude stone. The cupboard is clearly reused from another church. I was wondering if you could elaborate on the significance of that a little more. Right. In the cathedral at Aachen, which had been Charlemagne's uh, palace chapel, uh, I was taken round by the Dombaumeister, Helmut Mainz, and a lot of archaeological work had recently been done on the cathedral, and he took me over the fabric of the cathedral in great detail, telling me all of the new discoveries that they had made. And when we got to the throne, uh, most of the cathedral is in highly polished marbles, and some of the marbles uh, are columns and marble um, 
taken from the palace of the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus. And in taking those marbles, um, Charlemagne was uh, establishing a kind of continuity between the Roman Empire and his renovation, renovatio Romani Imperii, uh, which was his motto. And coming to the throne, uh, the throne was unusual and surprising because it was made out of very crude slabs of stone rather than, as you would expect for a throne, highly worked and uh, the highest um, artistic work in the building, which it clearly was not. And he explained that the marble had been uh, analysed and inspected very carefully and there was graffiti on the slabs that were rather crudely put together as a throne. And that graffiti was in the form of um, crosses and little calvaries. And on one panel, there was even what turned out to be a Roman board game. And the stone, when analysed, uh, was the same as the stone of the Rock of Calvary. So they put that together and have established that the, the panels uh, are probably paving slabs from uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And in 799, monks from uh, the Holy Sepulchre came to Aachen bearing what is described by Einhard, who's the uh, biographer of Charlemagne, as relics from the Holy Sepulchre. And they are convinced that the marble uh, was uh, the uh, group of relics that was brought from the Holy Sepulchre by the monks in 799. And being relics, uh, they worked the stone as little as possible because the stone was sacred. So it that explains why it's relatively crudely put together. And Charlemagne sat on this throne, and underneath the throne was a wooden cupboard uh, in which they kept um, the relics of St. Stephen, the proto-martyr, um, the first martyr in... Um, the Book of Acts, and the relics of St. Stephen was just bloody earth and stone from his stoning. He was stoned to death, but the, the relics were kept in a purse reliquary uh, that was decorated with precious stones. So these uh, 
these relics of the martyrdom of Stephen, which was just earth, was within uh, a reliquary decorated with the most valuable and finest um, stones uh, that you could get out of the earth. Very interesting. And so, as we'll continue to jump around, so another thing that's kind of a, again, we'll keep going with the theme of contrast, you know, quite a few of the examples, most of them in the book and the ones we've talked about, there is a, you know, a very big tenet of religion and politics being kind of tied together. And so one that's a very interesting contrast to me, and I'll apologize to all the listeners to all these words I'm mispronouncing very badly, was the Cathedral of Dormition. You can correct me if I said that wrong. Dormition, yeah. Dormition. And so the interesting point here is that you say that there's so many churches at the heart of the seat of the government, which is odd considering it's in a somewhat anti-religious state, for lack of a better term. Well, it had been anti-religious when it was the USSR. Right. And so I was wondering if you could kind of take us through a little bit more kind of the significance of these large grand churches in kind of the USSR, which did not place as much emphasis on religion. Yes. Well, in the example of the Church of the Dormition in the Moscow Kremlin, uh, there are a number of cathedrals in the Kremlin, and Russian Orthodoxy had from very early on in the development of uh, the Russian state had been very closely allied to the state itself so that religion and the state were very difficult to separate. They were both uh, very strong parts of the Russian identity until, of course, the Russian Revolution in 1917, uh, which was avowedly anti, not only anti-clerical, but anti-religious. So right. when they then had their government centered on the Kremlin, at the heart of the Kremlin are these very impressive golden domed churches, which uh, I remember in the 60s, um, watching news broadcasts, and all of them had the Kremlin and uh, particularly St. Basil's Cathedral in what is now Red Square, and you could sometimes see the golden domes of the Church of the Dormition in the Kremlin itself. But the what was being broadcast uh, was... Um, news of a state that was suppressing religion. But of course, now things have changed again, and religion has become part again of Russian identity. And they've started rebuilding some of the churches that had been destroyed uh, under Stalin, including an impressive iron, enormous cathedral that is to be uh, a war memorial 
to what they call the Great Patriotic War, that is, uh, the Second World War. Great. And so when you, you, you bring up Stalin, and so that provides the perfect segue into another one of the discussions we you have, and that is, you know, is particularly in regards to St. Peter's Basilica, you know, Mussolini had a very large impact on the architecture of the time in the area. You know, you kind of call it his mission of the revival of Rome. I don't know. I personally was not aware of that. I don't think many people are aware of his his clear architectural bias and what impact that had on the time. <clears throat> yes, well, Mussolini's treatment of Rome uh, was to revive the Roman Empire uh, in the form of the contemporary Italian Empire. And he, uh, that parallelism um gave another parallelism between himself and Augustus. And at the time, it was the, the bimillennium of Augustus. And in honor of that, uh, Mussolini carried out uh, what can only loosely be called archaeology in digging back in a an aggressive manner, um, removing all the um, medieval layers of the Roman Forum, digging down to the Imperial Forum uh, to create a grand parade route between the Colosseum right up into the heart of Rome through the Roman Fora. Uh, a parade route that would show uh, him as uh, a successor, an imperial successor, and a reviver of uh, Roman grandeur in uh, the 20th century. Great. And so what I'd like to wrap up with, and unfortunately there's just so much content in all these chapters, I urge everyone to read the book. And so, you know, you've went to great detail about your background with kind of the restoration of a historic ceiling. And so there is one building in particular, and again, you'll have to correct me here, the Sant'Ignazio in Rome. And Ignazio, uh, yeah. Thank you. And so this had another interesting thing personally for me, because it has some, you mentioned something that I didn't think existed in any historical church, and that is that the ceiling has kind of allegories of other regions of the world. You mentioned Europe, America, Africa, and Asia. And I'd love to hear more about that because I personally was not aware of any church that had that. Yes. In Sant'Ignazio in Rome, Andrea Pozzo, uh, a Jesuit and a painter and a mathematician painted the ceiling of the church, which was a barrel vault, uh, as an apotheosis of St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits. And that apotheosis was a celebration of what he had achieved 
and uh, with his fellow Jesuits in the evangelization of the world. And in parallel and in the wake of the Iberian empires of Spain and Portugal, the Jesuits had gone throughout the empire um, converting and evangelizing uh, all those that they had colonized. So, of course, uh, the empires were bound up with slavery and uh, with the domination of uh, indigenous peoples. Um, but the religious orders followed in the wake, um, establishing education institutions and um, uh, trying to mitigate uh, some of the excesses of the colonizing um, uh, imperial powers. And the Jesuits um, had, rather than an assimilationist approach to evangelization, they were more uh, involved in inculturation and almost the translation of the Christian religion into uh, what could be understood by the uh, local peoples. And this is perhaps uh, most clearly seen in the eastern um, parts of the empire and beyond, because they uh, went beyond the reach of the empires into Japan and China. And in China, Matteo Ricci in particular, uh, one of the Jesuits, uh, found, found access to the imperial court and was highly respected uh, as an intellectual. And he dressed as a Chinese sage and appealed to uh, the mandarins and the uh, the great ministers of state, including one who converted and took the uh, baptismal name of Paul, and together they translated um, uh, aspects of uh, Western science and mathematics, and the uh, Paul is still revered in China, and uh, I was fortunate enough to visit my son who was teaching in China, and I saw Paul's burial mound in Shanghai. And in the painted ceiling, you get um, uh, swirls of humanity going up towards um, an image of Christ carrying a cross at the center and rays of light coming out from him past St. Ignatius and down to images of the four continents evangelized by the Jesuits. Uh, and um, some of the uh, faces of the Jesuits are identifiable as particular Jesuit priests 
who had an impact in um, particular areas of the world, like Francis Xavier in particular um, in um, the uh, East, in Asia. Um, and you get swirls of humanity um, rising up, uh, being led by um, Jesuit priests on the way up to heaven to be received by Christ. A most amazing composition and with, uh, as a single composition, um, telling the story of the evangelization of the world by the Jesuits. So it's a, an apotheosis of St. Ignatius. Great. Thank you very much for that. And so, as I mentioned, you know, there's just so much to cover. So I urge everyone to read. So we got a great glimpse into what you had worked on before the book. But since the book's been published, you know, what projects have kind of occupied your time since? Well, um, I've been involved in editing um, a book on um, on. Uh, the architecture of the Church of England between the First and Second World Wars. Um, and uh, I'm writing a chapter for uh, a book on music and architecture. And uh, I've, been, I've been pondering what book I might uh, write next and thinking about a book called On Earth As It Is in Heaven, and talk about churches as images of heaven, images of the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, images of um, paradise. Uh, hmm. Well, hopefully we can uh, talk again about maybe some of those other ones in the future, then. <laughs> yes, I well, want to. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I said, yes, I hope so. <laughs> so I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, I'm very pleased that you asked. Um, and I'm so th very pleased to be with you and to be able to talk about um, uh, this book. Pleasure's all mine. And so the, the book is A History of the Church Through Its Buildings. And to all my listeners, thank you and have a great day. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you.